The Origins Podcast is now a part of the Origins Project Foundation. Please consider supporting the podcast and the foundation by going to www.originsprojectfoundation.org. Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. In this episode, I have a delightful conversation with paleoanthropologist Ian Tattersall, who's one of the world's experts on human evolution, has written a number of wonderful popular books, and was also curator of the Museum of Natural History in New York's exhibition on human evolution. It was controversial for obvious reasons, I guess, and it's a, it's a wonderful exhibit. But more than that, he's actually interested in many things, and one of the things we talk about is his fascination with the natural history of beer, among other things. So I hope you'll enjoy listening to my discussion with Ian in this episode of the Origins Podcast. Ian, it's, it's nice to be with you again, uh, and I've often learned more about my species from you than others, and, uh, and I hope to today. Uh, I want to start with, as we talk about human origins, I want to talk about your human origins, uh, not all the way back, but mm -hmm. what uh, got you inter interested in, in studying hominids in the first place? Basically, I stumbled into it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that uh, basically the only honest way to, uh, to, to, to discover anything is by accident. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was raised in Kenya. I was in, uh, in a boarding school in Nairobi when the Leakies were making their big discoveries uh, okay. in, um, in uh, uh, Olduvai Gorge. But um, I was in blissful ignorance of all of that. Uh -huh. And it was only when I got to college that I discovered that there was an area of anthropology that, um, uh, that, that was biological. Uh -huh. And um, I, I fell into it, and very happily so. Were you, what were you doing in Kenya? Your your father or mother was there for, or I mean, was it just a posting, or were were uh, were they? No, there I think me? that you know after uh, after the uh, the end of the uh, Second World War, um, and for a decade and a half at least after mm -hmm. that, you know, Britain was a pretty. Uh, um, depressed yeah. and gray gray place and uh, my father very cleverly discovered he could uh, he could, he could have a much better lifestyle in the colonies and he could do that because he was already working for London University uh. and he uh, got a job at uh, the University College of East Africa in Kampala in Uganda where they were giving London degrees so he could uh, he could go there without burning his bridges Oh, fascinating. So what yeah. kind of academic was he? Well, he actually was an administrator. He was a classicist by origin, classicist. but an administrator at the time. And so he ran the administration um, until, uh, until uh, you know, independence um, hove into yeah. view and it was time to go back to Britain. Did you ever, did you ever think you're doing classics? I mean, that's a, a little bit of the way back towards human origins, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I never thought of, uh, of doing classics. I was signally bad at, uh, at Latin. And, you know, I, I might have been discouraged from zoology if I'd known that, that we used <laughs> yeah, Latin eggs a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when did you decide that, that sort of focusing on early modern humans, or if you want to call it that, was, was uh, too fascinating yeah. to give up? Well, that was a very gradual process. Um, I went to uh, to college to study anthropology, basically because I already had some sort of uh, background in uh, 
the areas where many anthropologists used to go. And I was, you know, my my experience with anthropology was mm. with uh, with the the cultural end of it. Yeah. And only later did I discover there was biology, and um, and I much preferred the biology. It's interesting to me it, it, have it, when I hear you say that because. One of the things we're going to talk about is in mm-hmm. it is in your uh, one of your new books, Accidental Homo Sapiens. In some sense, you say ultimately uh, that when it comes to Homo Sapiens, it's culture rather than biology that really matters. Well, <laughs> that's that's absolutely right. Uh, uh, that's certainly what makes uh, human beings different. Uh, certainly, the way they use uh, mm-hmm. culture. And I was guilty, actually, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago now. Mm-hmm of uh, writing in, 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 in a book that there wasn't really anything that we could learn about ourselves from looking at our past. That <laughs> we couldn't learn perfectly well from looking around ourselves uh, at ourselves today. And um, that was a pretty, uh, pretty uh, uh, disreputable thing for <laughs> for a paleoanthropologist to say, yeah. but um, I, you know, I still believe it to to some extent. And I think that in studying paleoanthropology, what we're doing is um, answering uh, something very deep in ourselves that we mm. acquired uh, quite recently. And in a in a in a in a cosmic or geological sense, I mean, I've run workshops at, uh, uh, through our Origins project, and mm-hmm. and one one of the ones where I learned a tremendous amount was one where we did on the origins of, of human uniqueness, which is really partly mm-hmm. the, the subject of yeah. your new book and what makes humans unique. I at the time I found it fascinating because we we invited geneticists mm-hmm. and anthropologists, oh, I remember well, and yeah, 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 paleontologists, mm-hmm. economists. Uh, it, all sorts of people, and it reminded me of the that famous um, story about the people in the elephant. Uh, the geneticists yeah. said it was genetics that <laughs> right, made them, uh, right. the economists of yeah, right. and everyone seemed mm-hmm. to find a, a different reason. And it was it, it you know it's still a, a, it's a fascinating topic, mm-hmm. but at the same time, what's sort of remarkable is how early modern mm-hmm. early humans were 30, 40,000 years ago. And many when you oh, look right. at their cave mm-hmm. drawings and yeah. remarkably modern. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's an astonishing thing there because we we are we're looking back um, uh, quite a long way in time in historical terms. But we don't have to look back very far uh, before we find creatures that are completely different from us. I think that you know for the first several million years of, of human evolution. Early humans had been sort of extrapolations of uh, what had gone before, uh, but at about sometime under 100,000 years ago, there was a complete revolution in the way that humans uh, uh, were interacting with the world. And oddly enough, that was already 100,000 years after people who looked just like us Mm. had been around on the landscape. You know, our species was born uh, 200,000 years ago, but it didn't start acting in the way in which we act today uh, until uh, much later. And that that are the species that look just like us. Are you talking about Neanderthals or? or No, I'm talking about uh, Homo sapiens, modern humans. Yeah, Um, yeah. early modern humans. Neanderthals were actually quite considerably different from us in the way they appeared. Yes, and maybe we'll find out. Although I've read, (laughs) I was reading your book, and it seemed a little concerned about the. ethics of producing some Neanderthals today. <laughs> oh, I don't think we would want to even go there. I think one of the, the one of the points that was raised at that uh, that Origins event that you mentioned, yeah. uh, somebody asked, uh, well, what would happen if we if we cloned um, 
and the MFR. Yeah. And the first thing that occurred to me was, well, how would we know how to bring it up mm-hmm. as a Neanderthal. So much of us is what we learn. If yeah. anybody, of a, one of us were sort of brought up in a, in a uh, black box, we would be very, very different mm-hmm. creatures from the ones we turned out to be. Yeah, well, I think that's the thrust that I, I get from, from your new book, is, is, that, is how much of what makes us us is not hardwired, in a sense, biology, mm-hmm. in, in the sense that, that we... The, the very basis of most of our civilization, including things that people mm-hmm. think of as, as intrinsic aspects of our psychology, really come through culture, through, through the experience of being human. And the experience of being human is, involves being brought up in a human culture, one or another. Exactly, yeah. Of course, because I grew up at a different time, I was trying to figure out when, when species seem to have a different meaning. Um, I, w- I was always told species mm-hmm. were things that couldn't mate and produce, re- you know, mm-hmm. productive offspring. Yep. But then, of course, Still I know are. that I have Neanderthal mm-hmm. genes, and you do. And clearly, then these two species, Neanderthals and humans, did at least for a while were able to to mate effectively. Mm-hmm. And so it always confused me this notion of species. And I wonder, you know, just recently I see a new a new branch on the mm-hmm. hominid tree was right. claimed to be discovered. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering whether I should believe any of that. I, I just wonder if if, yeah. if you have one or two samples mm-hmm. of individuals that look very different. Yeah. And your book is all about the bell curve, mm-hmm. but 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 let me give you the hypothetical that I that I often think of. If I were in a watching a basketball game mm-hmm. and the roof caved in and all of us in the audience died, as did the basketball players, and then a long time in the future some some anthropologists or paleontologists came and dug it up mm-hmm. and found a basketball player in me, mm-hmm. I'm sure they would say we're a different species, don't you think? You know, I'm not sure that uh, that they would. There's something very distinctive about our species Homo sapiens uh-huh. that makes it different from all the other species that we know of in the, uh, in, in the fossil record. I think one thing that we have to bear in mind when you're pondering the kind of yeah. question, which is really an important question that you have been pondering, is that Every species has to descend from another species. Yeah. That's the only way you get new That's species right. is through descent like that. That means that when they're newly separated, species are very closely related. And if they're very closely related, that means that there's probably some degree of uh, genetic compatibility. And often what separates species is the way they behave, the mm-hmm. way they recognize potential partners and um, mm-hmm. And so on. So it's not really surprising that early on in the history of uh, of closely related species, that if they come into contact, and they, in order to speciate, they have to be separated in some way. That and if they come into contact, um, then there will be some minor uh, degree of interbreeding. But uh, what happened in the case of Homo sapiens and the Neanderthals mm. was that Homo sapiens went on its merry way to become mm. the species that we know mm. today, yeah. and. Um, that the Neanderthals went on to become extinct uh, pretty much identifiably themselves. Yeah. Uh, so that these were two populations on different historical trajectories, as it were. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, they may have been closely related, and yes, they may well have, uh, have exchanged a gene or two, but it didn't make a lot of, uh, of long-term difference in terms of their evolutionary fate or even their, uh, you know, their ecological roles. Well, then these other hominid species that have been discovered recently mm-hmm. from Dennis, Dennis, Dennis <laughs> how do I say it? Denisovans. Yeah, Denisovans. And yeah. to um, 
I don't know what this new one's called. That's just been well, another lose lose on Ensis. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and, this is and cool. so, what what do you make of this? Of, of and, and were they contempt? Were, were they uh, contemporaries or? Uh, well, and what do you make of that? Of how the human tree, the mm-hmm. hominid tree, has changed. Let, let me put it a different way. So one of the wonderful things you d- you've done, uh, and among many, is create, I think, the Hall of Human Origins at the Museum of Natural History in New York, mm-hmm. which I've in- thoroughly enjoyed, uh, for the most part, except for a little bit of religion there that I didn't... That, well, that, yeah, we, <laughs> we, we all have our opinions uh, yeah. about that. How, w- how much would have changed since that's been developed? How much, be, with oh. these new discoveries? Do oh, they change everything, or are they just small, minor minor uh, alterations one of the big problems when you when you do an exhibition hall like that yeah. is you, you're spending a lot of money and you know yeah. you're not going to be able to spend that yeah. kind of money again mm-hmm. anytime in the in the near future so you have to sort of obsolescence proof it as yeah. uh, as well as you can but the issue then is that it mean that means leaving out a lot of stuff yeah. you have to decide to talk about things that you think are going to be relatively durable and that, you know, uh, means leaving out all the interesting things du jour yeah. that, you may, that you may have. And that's always a quandary that you have in a museum exhibit. But once it's in there, the chances that it's going to be materially changed yeah. over its lifetime are slim to none. If you had, to, if you had your, if you, brothers, if you had the chance now, what would you change in that? There is a lot that I would change, mainly uh, because uh, that was a designer's hall. Oh, I see. Um, when we did its predecessor, mm-hmm. uh, the Hall of Human uh, Biology and Evolution, um, uh, the world was a very, a very different place, and a, uh, a curator and a designer uh, had to uh, negotiate to come up with a final result. And you know, uh, yeah, you yeah. might have disagreed, but it was a sort of a face-to-face uh, thing, and and you had to come up with a result that made everybody happy. Uh, now, as in virtually every area of human experience, things are done by committee. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel much less of a sense of authorship in this hall than I did in the, uh, predecessor, in the predecessor hall. Um, but things have, have moved forward. And the reason why we have the, uh, the, 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 the new hall, which is not so new anymore, yeah. is that, you know, things have changed a lot. And particularly the administration, the museum, wanted the molecular story. Yeah. Uh, to be told, and that was when they uh, they they co-opted uh, um, my my colleague Rob DeSalle uh-huh. uh, as a uh, as a co uh, co curator of the hall, and that's when we started our long collaboration, yeah, which, which resulted in this uh, in book, this book which, and a yeah. couple of books that yeah, come out recently. Ten, we'll ten talk, or we'll twelve, talk I think. Wow, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's funny because from the public's perspective, part of the hoopla about mm-hmm. it was the explicit notion of evolution as being in a, in a time in which evolution was being confronted uh, or natural selection yeah. and evolution be confronted in the schools and in politics. And so I remember at the time it was like, you yeah. this actually, well, you know, instead of, it makes it explicit. Well, we've never really been, been afraid of uh, confronting that. And frankly, in, 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 in New York city, we're in a relatively yeah. receptive yeah. place. We're not really on the front lines of uh, that particular battle um, at the museum. But we've never been afraid to confront this kind of thing. Uh, back in 1984, 
one of the most exciting things that I've ever done in mm -hmm. my lifetime was to uh, be a co-curator of an exhibit of original human fossils mm -hmm. in which we brought in original fossils from wow. all around the world. I think we had 19 different countries and you know 50 or 60 different fossils from, from uh, 19 countries um, in that um, exhibit. And we were really worried. You know, we had uh, you know, security issues and we, we consulted with uh, Chemical Bank as it was in those days, now Chase Bank. Yeah. Um, you know, about uh, security issues and how you protect things behind armored glass and uh, whatnot. And we're very serious about that, but it didn't stop the museum from actually going ahead and, uh, and having this show. Well, you seem to not mind confronting um, things. <laughs> well, that, I mean, in the yeah. new book, it basically you confront sociobiology, evolutionary mm -hmm. psychology, um, yeah. a, a great deal of, of, of what is discussed as sort of certain... The, the, the claim mm -hmm. that in some sense that that biological evolution has determined yep. many of your behavior characteristics. In mm -hmm. fact, you, you you basically discount that completely yeah, as far do. as I can see. And, yeah. you know, I found a few, I found something that, well, there's a lot in there that caused me to think about, about uh, this. Uh, one really interesting point you make about children mm -hmm. is that sure, we all have it, the same genetic, you know, homo sapiens, mm -hmm. the same genetic, basic genetic makeup. So as an infant, we're capable of learning any language, mm -hmm. and um, and but yet by the time we're five years old, we've already learned not only a language but a set of beliefs and values, and prejudices mm -hmm. that largely define who we are. And moreover, they can be completely different than the beliefs, values, and prejudices and language of another infant. So in some sense, mm -hmm. they're almost two cultural yeah. species that are distinct. We may be biological species, mm -hmm. but from if you want to talk about what yeah. you defer, other than it being able to yeah. procreate what a right. species might be, they're essentially two different species. And so that yeah. so that culture in some sense overwhelmingly determines what uh how we act. Yeah, no, that's that's the great conundrum of trying to 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 define what we are as uh, as humans, because uh, we all are born with the capacity to become an adult human in whatever way, shape, or manner of form. Um, uh, it happens uh, to us, uh, but you know, by the time that we're you know not 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 that old, we we are culturally more distinctive from people on the other side of the world than, than most, uh, you know, species, um, uh, primate species are, are, are from each other, and yet we're all in the same species. Um, so the, what, you, what being human means is to have a capacity to believe all kinds of things. And all this feeds back into the fact that everybody makes the world in their own mind and um, in their own way. You know, other species live in the world pretty much as, uh, as nature presents it to them. Mm. And sometimes they react to it in very sophisticated ways as uh, indeed, you know, elephants and, uh, and, uh, and chimpanzees and so on do. Um, but nothing else really re remakes the world. We sort of we sort of disassemble the world into a vocabulary of symbols that mm. you know words are, are the, the classic example of these symbols, and reassemble them in our in our minds. And we live in the world in which we reassemble, as reassembled in our minds, um, really uh, much more than we live in the actual world that uh, is out there. Well, you know, I get the sense that 
when I was when I've been reading your work, recent work, that that's your answer to the question: what's what the origin of human uniqueness mm-hmm. is this symbolic reasoning? Uh, in a sense, yeah. it reminiscent of, of of ideas, at least that I've discussed with Noam Chomsky, mm-hmm. that 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 the ability in his minimalist interpretation, mm-hmm. the ability to take a few variables and and basically add on to them means you have an infinite po- with a few simple things yeah. you have you can create an infinite number of sentences mm-hmm. and there and therefore there's an incredible w- world of possibilities out there and that that yeah. that symbolic notion which presumably i think you would argue is what came about somehow around 100,000 years yeah. ago is what changed everything yeah. yeah i think that's key to how it happened so quickly because basically Noam is saying that there's a, a very, very small algorithmic change yeah. gives you this amazing emergent uh, uh, result. And it's what is what is extraordinary is not the change itself so yeah. much as, uh, as the result. We're, and I think that's very key. I think where we would tend to, you know, Noam really is, is the first person who, who, who really drew attention to the fact that language is a portal to thought. Yeah. Um, just as much as it is uh, to, uh, to 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 uh, to communication. As he says it's more uh, not just as much. It's even more important. It's language yeah. was created not to communicate, but to affect the way mm-hmm. we think. Yeah, indeed. That's that's what he would uh, he he would say, and. Um, I think that the language and thought are too intimately intertwined uh, to say that one is more important than the yeah. other. And uh, Noam would, would say we were thinking before we were speaking or uh-huh. before we were using articulate uh-huh. language. I think the two came in a feedback yeah. with each other because I can't see how the cycle could possibly have started mm-hmm. without something like that. Because of this claim that basically... You know, there's a genetic basis that made the Homo sapiens, but once we had symbolic thought, mm-hmm. that that basically changed everything. Yeah. It was a sea change, and it will be a sea change for a variety of reasons we'll get into. Mm-hmm. But it, our evolutionary success means that we will not undergo the same biological stresses or uh, selection effects mm-hmm. that would produce speciation, as, as we'll talk about. It, but it, uh, it reminded me, I couldn't help but thinking, it reminded me of Rousseau in some sense, that we're born free but live forever in chains. Mm-hmm. That the that the freedom of that this infant, we have this biological basis, mm-hmm. but we are. But the minute we're embedded in a cult, culture, that creates a set of chains that mm-hmm. literally govern our process, thought processes. We more importantly, the way we behave more than any other thing that we are chained by our culture. Yeah, I think that is absolutely the case, and there's no question, uh, no question uh, about it. But once that infant has become an adult mm-hmm. it can still make choices he or she can still make choices and we retain uh, uh, an element of free will uh, as an adult or probably we don't have as kids because we're just absorbing mm-hmm. um, other people's values when we're kids as adults we can step back and look at situations and make our own judgments and maybe even act on those judgments. And that is what I I would think of as being as being free will. We can make choices. Well, for all intents and purposes, we can make choices. There may be very f- many factors that so many factors yeah. that go into it that there may there you know one one could yeah. 
argue that there's a deterministic effect in our... Well, those that, but, are the chains, so many, but I don't think it's deterministic. Well, in any, just, in any more sense, I mean, when you have so many factors, very small things can... Mm-hmm. It's hard to predict. It may, in, literally impossible to predict in advance, but there may be many factors that go into it, maybe, that, that, that affect our decision-making oh, yeah, that we may not we be aware of. But if there's so many, it's like the fly with, and uh, you know, the butterfly and its wings. It mm-hmm. can produce dramatic, some small effect if, yep. if there's chaos and mm-hmm. many factors that that we can't predict what 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 you're going to do in advance. So mm-hmm. effectively, oh. it seems like free will in any case. Yeah. Well, the thing is that the only ironclad law of human existence probably is the law of unintended consequences, yeah. right? So, so yeah, we are this paradox. I mean, uh, humans are are just a bundle of contradictions, and what they do leads to contradictory things. Yeah. Um, well, we're well, not talking about any kind of perfected organism here. Yeah, well, that's there's there's a few key facts that you. It seems to me you're trying to dispel some of them wisdom in the field and some of them is misunderstanding of the nature of natural selection and evolution one of the uh, i've had this debate in fact with uh, a number of people is is the notion that that somehow evolution is directed towards Mm -hmm. perfect you know it's got a goal and there's a a perfection down there and there's there's improvements and of course that's not the case at all. Maybe you want to elaborate. No, on that. It, I, I think it, it, it certainly is the case. Uh, evolution is just a matter of what works at, at uh, any time. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of my career offending uh, evolutionary psychologists yeah. and whatnot. And quite honestly, uh, in this book, I wanted to get away from that. I didn't even want to mention evolutionary psychology. Well, you, you did, uh, but <laughs> I, Well, I did because I had, I had a co-author. And... Yeah. Um, who feels very much the same way, the same way that I do, and wanted to express it in his way, and I was eventually happy to uh, to to go along with this. The the two things you really really hit on are, as I say, sociobiology. The somehow the sense that our social predilections and uh, 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 and decision making is 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 determined by genetics mm-hmm. and evolutionary psychology that certain quote-unquote, universal facets of human culture are also determined, at least by our evolutionary basis, rather than our cultural basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by evolutionary basis, I mean a biological basis that can be traced in some way to our genetic heritage. And one of the examples you talk about, which is interesting to me because I've talked about this in a different context, and it caused me to rethink this, is the notion of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the fact that religion is ubiquitous in human society seems to suggest that there's some biological need for religion and you counter that so maybe you could ex- you, you could sort of well human society is is very complex and i think that religion certainly answers to the kind of need that societies have interestingly yes all societies uh, have some notion of of religion, whether it's organized or not. Maybe yeah. we should say spirituality yeah. as a more generalized thing. I just take that word. But, but okay. um, within every society, there's uh, there are also people, of course, who are not having any of it. Yeah, yeah. And um, the uh, the fact that uh, organized religion is, is extremely suited to the kind of uh, uh, power structure that you have to have in societies, I think is a very significant reason for why it is so widespread, it's it's something that helped, that helped societies to do whatever it was they had to do. So, so in a sense, because all humans live in societies, mm-hmm. it's it it, uh, it it turns out to be an uh, independently 
discovered an effective way of of controlling power structures within that society rather than biological it's just a, it's the circumstance of the fact that humans live in social groups well, well it's biologically a result of the fact that we are able to conceive of things that we haven't seen and uh, uh, that uh, we haven't heard of and that we can't touch um, so you biologically have to have that human capacity which I think is basically that symbolic uh, capacity. So that's the, that's where you say, in some sense, seems to me that's mm-hmm. where you say biology ends or genetics ends. Somehow the genetic structure of humans produced a, uh, mm-hmm. a structure which produced a brain that had symbolic reasoning. And after that, that's it. I think you're uh, yeah, absolutely right there. I think that basically the capacity is what underpins everything else. It's what makes everything else possible. But the way in which uh, that capacity is exploited, uh, the way in which things are pursued, differs from place to place. And it differs according to probably so many, imag- uh, so, so many different factors that you could barely begin to model them. Well, I, you know, and a big part of your book is this bell curve notion, mm-hmm. the fact that there's var- variances within a population and that part of that in some sense demonstrates the the non-biological nature of, of how societies work because mm-hmm. people can pick up yeah. on, at that time, in that cultural time, what works and what doesn't. And, right. and, and it's no more, the fact that religion is ubiquitous is no more surprising perhaps than the fact that there are many other ways that independent that organisms, mm-hmm. including human organisms, have independently sol- come up to solve problems. Mm-hmm. I thought, I, I can't help but poetically notice that in the book, you mentioned the fact that beer is produced <laughs> uh, from rice in one place and barley in another, but it, but it's an independent solution. Mm-hmm. And since contemporaneously with this book, you produced a bo- book called The Natural History of Beer. I wondered if that was on your mind when you did it. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, that uh, that particular phrase was uh, written um, as uh, you know as a result of having been thinking about beer. But the books were published uh, uh, almost at the same time, but they were written quite far apart in time because uh, trade publishers uh, tend to 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 act much more quickly than the university publishers do. Yes, yes. Uh, well, but you specifically argue very strong against people who claim there's a gene for religion or a mm-hmm. gene for homosexuality. And and it's worth, I'd like to give you a chance to expand upon that because you'll do better than me. I mean, I read the book, but but uh, because one thing I want to ask about this is you present a very cogent, a series of cogent arguments. And I know part of it is you're, you're trying to aim at, and as they do in the last part of the book, to talk about possible solutions for societal problems that, mm-hmm. that are, you know, to argue that we're not genetically determined to, to destroy ourselves or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wonder how much pushback you're getting from colleagues on this. Well, the book just, uh, just came out. So, yeah, but your uh, ideas they, presumably have been, have been, uh, uh, you've been promoting ideas among, um, among colleagues for some time, I guess. Well, you know, uh, the, we've been independently, uh, you know, talking about uh, issues that have to do with uh, with the degree to which behaviors may be inherited, mm-hmm. um, you know, for for a long time. And, you know, clearly this has not made us very popular with the people <laughs> uh, who believe that we are adapted to a uh, to, to 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 an environment that um, for some reason uh, no longer exists. And um, and and uh, we therefore behave inappropriately. It's a very nice 
it's a very nice sort of out uh, for you to say, oh, yes, well, we have infidelity because we're condemned to have it by our genes. Um, you know, this is just one of the other choices, one of, one of the choices we have to make. And, you know, and... Um, but there's more scientific basis for your arguments against, say, a gay gene or a, or a religious gene. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it's probably, I'd like to give you some time to, to sort of elaborate on them here. Well, the, uh, the, the, there, is, there is a tendency that we, we have very reductionist minds, yeah. you know. Uh, human beings are storytellers. I, I, I notice that you, you, uh, you yeah. constantly harp against a reductionism as a particle physicist who's tried to... <laughs> well, I mean, in physics, it works pretty darn well. And, mm-hmm. that, uh, and so, but, yep. but your argument is that this notion of reductionism, reducing everything to our genes, yeah. is, is, is Well, we have misplaced. reductionist minds and uh, because uh, that, that is the way the mind likes to work. And that's great great for you physicists, right? It's not so great for anybody who's trying to understand. So, so let me just put it this way. Would you say reductionism is biological? I would say... <laughs> you said I, that's I, the way the mind I likes think, to work. I think, I think a tendency towards uh, uh, a favoring reductionist explanations is sort of uh, inherent in the way in which our minds are organized, which is basically uh, biological. But okay. we're talking again. We're not talking about about specifics of expression of this tendency. We're talking about the origin of the tendency itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but go on. So, so I interrupt you. So, reductionism means we tend as to want to to, to have relate a one to one one to one relationship between, say, genes and behavior. Exactly, exactly, and that this that's what it boils down to in the uh, in the in the case of human beings. In in any case, and we like to 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 be able to find a simple, straightforward, direct explanation of uh, one thing giving rise to something else, and um, uh, we are entertained by that kind of uh, by that that kind of notion, but it's often very very misleading. Because in fact, uh, things are much more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, I think you should give evidence of that, right? We do. I mean, we we pile up, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of evidence, and we look at this the the evidence that has, uh, uh, you know, these studies are difficult to do, but uh, the relating of behaviors uh, to genes on a genome wide on a genome wide basis, and this usually reveals that the. Uh, uh, that, uh, that, that, that we think, you know, are, are, are the basis of what makes us unique. You know, there's usually about a 50-50 split between, uh, between environmental and genetic genomic effects. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you try to, to, to um, quantify the, uh, the um, contribution of particular genes... You usually find that that the top, you know, the the the, the top hundred or so genes that are uh, associated with particular behaviors mm. only account for a tiny percentage of all the variation that uh, that you see out there. So it's there's a, there's a very very there's obviously some there's a genetic uh, predisposition that. Um, that underlies all our behaviors, but that are the expression of those behaviors is uh, is is a function of of many 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 more things and many 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 genes and genes live in an incredibly complex environment. You know, uh, Richard Dawkins, you just uh, mentioned, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, was 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 very happy to uh, to to look for genes for this mm-hmm. and for that and for the other thing. But genes actually don't act alone, mm-hmm. and um, you cannot really change one thing, um, you know, in the in 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 the genome without affecting many 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 other things at the same time. So every every change there is in that genomic equilibrium um, involves a trade off. Of some kind or another, and that's been actually known for many, many years. Eric Lenneberg wrote about it uh, in the context of neurolinguistics back, you know, half a century ago. I, I was perfectly happy to sort of buy, buy the argument that, in ultimately, genetics—if if you knew the genetic makeup of a human being, you'd know, uh, and you had infinite computer power, mm-hmm. you'd basically be able to determine the people they were and how they behave. But one of the things that that sort of struck me immediately as as arguing against that is the work that's been done on on the microbiome mm-hmm. on the fact that ultimately when i think i'm making decisions of what i want that it, it that it, the microbes in my gut seem to have an, as much of an impact uh, on my decision making and my character and and not only what i like to eat or mm-hmm. not um as anything else yeah, there's certainly, uh, certainly, we are, we are uh, every one of us as an individual human being is actually an ecosystem. And we're affected by all the components in that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, those components are so, uh, so varied and, uh, and, and diverse that it's, uh, it's very, very hard to single out um, the action of any one of them. It's very, very rarely that you can you can impute anything in this realm to say a, a single gene or to a, a single cause of any kind. You know, people often ask, "Well, if we're evolving, what's the next step?" Mm-hmm. And you point out that 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 culture that that something it is well known that culture has changed everything, and mm-hmm. and and not just that, the density of humans on Earth has changed everything. Mm-hmm. But but you do make some statements that so there's a quote that you, you that you. you Given mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the book, which I found fascinating, and I can see mm-hmm. in the context of where you're heading about our future and talking about the nature of choice, you say part of being what the quote is: "Part of being human is the inhumanity of it." That's exactly right. I mean, I think we 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 begin the book with this with this quote because this is essentially the theme that that humans are paradoxical creatures. Humans are bundles of contradiction, and there's just as much of what we would call inhumanity in the uh, in, in, in the world as produced by humans, as there is humanity. And uh, that's, uh, you know, another, another thing that sort of contributes another illustration of this sort of bell curve um, effect that you've already mentioned, that everything that humans do is counterbalanced at the other end of the distribution by things that other people do. Oh, you could be humane and inhumane in the same day. Um, it's uh, it's an extraordinary thing. We are these bundles of paradoxes. You're not the same person when you go to bed at night as you were uh, when you uh, got get up in the morning. Um, you know, humans are constantly in flux. But what you can guarantee is that we're going to be inconsistent. There's a great quote somewhere in the book that I thought I wrote down that... Um, Exactly that. You know, basically everything, every time you generalize and say humans will, will, behavior will respond this way, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a counterexample. Yeah. And, and often in individuals right. on a day, on a daily basis. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think one thing I, I was uh, reading a, a biography of uh, of James Boswell once, who was of course uh, Samuel Johnson's biographer, yeah. and um, the, uh, the 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 guy who wrote the blurb on the back of the book, or who you know the the, the summary of the book, the teaser, um, was was citing you know uh, the, uh, the, the the all the contradictions in. Uh, Boswell's character traits, oh, yeah, I and love I thought, that oh my gosh, here, this is the human condition he's describing right here. This isn't James Boswell. This is this yeah, is you humanity. Said, like, wonderful father, right. whoring, whatever. You That's know, right. Yeah, yeah, it just right. goes on and on. And you know, yeah. uh, pedant who writes the best biography ever. I mean, it's sort of right. It's, 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 right. It was a, it was a Writer wonderful of example. Tedious of doggerel and also yeah, exactly. the most powerful biography in the I'm language. I'm not sure yeah, I want right. that. I want to quote the blurb in the modern. If anyone, <laughs> if I ask for a blurb, I'm not sure I'd want that one. <laughs> you you want half of it? Yeah, <laughs> if I get to yeah, if right. I get to choose the half. But I found uh, uh, there are two quotes in here w- which which I wrote down, which seem to be are they consistent? W- one was every individual is a sum of his or her genetic predispositions, mm-hmm. and another is that nothing in the fossil record exists that can predict who we are. So how can I reconcile those two things? Well, I think that basically uh, the solution is in this phenomenon of, of emergence where mm-hmm. you put two unrelated things together and then something completely different I- emerges. You know, human behavior is certainly is certainly uh, an emergent thing that would never have been predicted from anything that we see before in the in the uh, in the in the archaeological record. I think in the archaeological record we see an increasing sophistication among our predecessors, our precursors. Uh, they are getting better and better at exploiting the environment. They're 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 developing more and more sophisticated technologies, um, not continually, mm-hmm. but in a sort of stepwise way. Um, they're becoming more complex creatures, but they're becoming more complex uh, along uh, a, a certain trajectory. And then suddenly, when our predecessors began to have, behave in a symbolic manner, mm-hmm. all hell broke loose, you know, and all the rules changed, as you said, you know, it's, it's a, literally a, a, ch- a change in the rules. And that is because of an emergent quality that gives rise to this uh, symbolic ability to reconstitute the world in our heads and imagine it can be other than it is. And since we've got clever hands, we can do something about that. The question, the one, if I try and be generous and, and, and expand the notion of evolutionary psychology mm-hmm. to, to certain general predispositions that give rise to a whole slew of oh. different behaviors, may, it, could there be a you know, predisposition to solving problems in a certain way or, or certainly the predisposition to living in social groups, mm-hmm. to creating oh. effective social groups, so that there is a genetic basis to, and it seems to me that your whole discussion is based on the fact that we live in social groups and those mm-hmm. social groups have evolved. Another milestone that as far as I can see in the development of homo sapiens, mm-hmm. at least, is the shift from hunter-gatherer to, to living in, in, in agricultural communities, which, totally. which produces a whole bunch of different stresses, social yeah. stresses, and you might say environmental stresses that change the way we behave. Yeah. Well, that too, that too is entirely emergent. And of course, uh, you become, once you've switched your trajectory, you're kind of a prisoner of that, you know, until the, uh, the next, uh, 
uh, emergent thing uh, happens. But yeah, I am I am certainly not here to, to knock evolutionary psychology. I think the really cool thing that evolutionary psychologists are doing, you know, whether or not the initial assumption that behaviors are driven by genes is true, it has led them to look at human behaviors in great detail mm-hmm. and in a structured kind of a way and it has led them to learn a great deal about the regularities in human behavior and what can be predicted uh, about human behavior and maybe what what can't. And I think that's an extremely valuable thing. So, you know, I'll, no, I'm balanced. I'm very happy to have evolutionary psychology around. And I'm, I'm not here to say that it's, uh, that it's uh, a, a bill of goods at all. Well, but we, I guess what you would say is that the, is that the range of behavior that can be predicted is small compared to the range of behavior that can't be? Or at least the the, the, the prediction is based more, uh, that if you were going to make predictions, you'd based it more on the culture in which someone is living than on any evolutionary history to arrive at that culture? Well, the, the, you know, the, the, there's a history of uh, diversification of cultures. Yeah. You know, and, you know, cultural evolution is, uh, which you know, basically, you know, uh, we're, uh, we're, you know, if, if current um, uh demographic uh, conditions continue to obtain. You know, we're not going anywhere biologically, but we're certainly going somewhere culturally. And what happened 100,000 years ago is that we, we, uh, we acquired a capacity that we began to explore at that mm-hmm. time. And that exploration has led us through this transition out of, uh, out of, out of hunting, gathering into sedentary lifestyles. It's, it's led us to, to literacy, you know, it's led us to rockets to the moon. It's mm-hmm. led us to all kinds of things. And we've got no idea where this stops. We don't know if we're, uh, uh, you know, if, if, if it's an exhaustible capacity or an inexhaustible one. It's really, really, really exciting to, uh, uh, to, to, to be exploring this. You, there's an interesting part of a chapter where you talk about the future of evolution. People's claims about, oh, in the future we're going to mm-hmm. have big brains, big heads. We're going to be, you know, progressively lighter in our bones and yep. maybe we won't be able to walk and and those arguments are based on once again this notion that some natural selection is is affecting us mm-hmm. and your and your point is that doesn't work at all maybe you could explain why well i think that uh, what we tend to do anytime we predict the future is first thing we do we look at the past and yeah. the 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 uh, the the temptation is to predict the future by extrapolating what we find in the past mm-hmm. and certainly in when we look at our own past we find we find a very strong um, you know tendency we find our brains have been getting bigger you know among our among our, our precursors uh, for, for for a long time they were obviously interacting in the world in more and more complex ways mm-hmm. there is a distinct trajectory there mm-hmm. um, the only thing is it's thrown off at the last minute mm-hmm. by our new way of manipulating um, uh, information in the brain. Since when, by the way, the uh, the human brain has gotten smaller. Um, <laughs> we're, we're famous for having smaller brains than Neanderthals. We also um, actually have smaller brains than the Homo sapiens who lived at the same time as Neanderthals and were still behaving like Neanderthals. But once uh, we started behaving in this new way, using a new mental algorithm, which turns out presumably to have been more frugal metabolically, mm-hmm. we found out we didn't need so much brain and brains have gotten smaller because they're an expensive thing to have. If you don't need a big brain, mm-hmm. you're not going to have one. The, the other s- 
situation that I found impressive was the fact that, yeah, okay, that 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 so-called trajectory of evolution Mm -hmm. was a fallacy, but it's also not that there's a continual progression, but there are these sharp shifts Mm -hmm. that, again... Um, depend on and cultural circumstances, the ebbs and flows of climate, for example, mm-hmm. that produce immediate yeah. changes, but then but then are addressed culturally and and may not therefore represent a future change. Well, now they are, but if you look back in into the past, there were basically four major technological shifts. And, you know, technology is what we have a record of yeah. in the material record, yeah. and we can look at. I mean, it's only a tiny, tiny. A reflection of what the entire uh, social and cultural situations were. But technology, we do have a record in the form of stone tools. Uh-huh. We have the first stone tools. Well, let's not worry about about, about arguable things uh, uh, that, that are very old. But definitely stone tools made in the way in which we uh, think of stone tools regularly being made about two and a half million years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple thing. It's a... It's a uh, you take one uh, one lump of stone, a river cobble, and you whack uh, um, another cobble with it, uh-huh. and you get a sharp flake. If you do it right, if you do it right, which is not so easy, uh-huh. um, you you get a sharp flake, and you can use that flake for cutting. And it doesn't matter what it looks like, no matter how big it is, how small it is, it's the sharp edge that counts. Uh-huh. For a million years, people made stone tools basically like that uh-huh. for a whole million years I mean, the, the concept of stone tool making didn't change and then at about 1.6 million years ago with a little outlier back to 1.78 but it, it's that's an outlier mm-hmm. uh, people started making um, tools to a particular shape they started making what they call the hand axe which is uh, you take a lump of rock and you shape it very carefully with multiple blows uh-huh. on both sides until you get this big teardrop shaped uh-huh. implement and that was obviously a very successful implement, and that continued to be made right up until about 160,000 years ago. And then at about 300,000 years before the uh, the hand axe dropped out, uh, the next kind of um, uh, uh, conceptually new stone tool came in, um, and that uh, was the uh, the prepared coarse stone tool, where you you carefully shaped a lump of uh, a lump of rock again with multiple blows on mm-hmm. both sides, and you prepare a platform and whack uh, and and that, then whack the resulting thing and and get off a big flake with the cutting edge all the way around the periphery continuous uh-huh. cutting edge um so look so here we're talking about a period of two and a half million or nearly ne- nearly two and a half million years with only three technological changes uh-huh. now suddenly when homo sapiens comes along and starts behaving in a in in in, in a, what's called a, a symbolic way, uh-huh. uh, suddenly that that um, pattern of highly episodic change mm-hmm. completely uh, disappears, and people are making uh, stone tools, uh, you know, in or in their own fashion, and and you know, within fifty thousand years, you've got uh, you know, you've got the computer. Yeah. Well, in fact, I think you make the claim, and I assume, I, I thought it was, I was trying to think if I believe it, maybe do- dogs might be different, but they've been engineered. You said we, there's no other species that resembles less what it looked like two and a half million years ago than humans. Mm-hmm. That's true. And and that that is simply because of the cultural evolution of the last 50,000 years. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm uh, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the first the first Homo sapiens who looked just like us were behaving like 
their their predecessors, but they had come a tremendously long way in their physical structure that we can pick up in the uh, the, uh, fossil record. Um, This is a separate question. Humans have changed radically Uh in uh, in two million years in a way in which no other lineage of mammal Mm -hmm. uh, seems to to have done in that particular period anyway. Um, And that Radical physical change is 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 something quite uh, quite extraordinary, but it's independent. It's independent from this change in the way in which we manipulate information in our minds that occurred suddenly about a hundred thousand years ago. Um, that is a separate. That's a separate event, and okay. we became at that point we became culturally um, different. And okay, so so. We now, I think people often say, well, if, you know, and that's another argument people use against evolution. Well, if you look at evolution, how come, you know, in survival of the fittest, how come we behave mm-hmm. the way they are? And, and, and of course, the point is that cult- culture dominates. We are thinking beings, culture dominates. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and as you know, for a long time, altruism was a lot of people tried, mm-hmm. said, how can you explain altruism if it's survival of the fittest? And there's lots of arguments why, genetic arguments, while altruism yeah. is a, is a good thing, as, as well, you know. people tie themselves in knots because they want a reductionist explanation. And your argument is, well, but, they're, so, they're, they're not, in a cultural sense, there's, there's a reason for, for a thinking species that can imagine a future to be altruistic that has nothing necessarily to do with any natural selection that occurred before. No, I, what I'm saying is that basically uh, altruism and selfishness you know, belong on the same curve. Yeah, and, and that you know, altruism is simply a uh, a outlier on this curve of what you call, I don't know, cooperation or however yeah. you, you might want to put it. You've got saints, and you, you got know, on, on, on altruistic saints on the one end, and you have you have selfish monsters on the other end, and most of us are somewhere in the middle. And so that arguing that all, so trying to argue you don't for the extremes, to. you don't need genetics to argue for the extremes. You just need a very, uh, variability. Yeah. You don't, you don't need a, a special explanation for altruism. It's one of the things that is available to people. People can be altruistic. They can be selfish. And, and so there's a universe of possibilities made possible because of symbolic thinking. Exactly. And we exploit all of them. Because we can make the choices. We can make choices, but but social systems select. I mean, as you say, mm-hmm. religion may be selected by yep. social systems because it allows that group of people. Mm-hmm. It's not a genetic selection, but it's it's it, it to effectively have a power structure that works well when mm-hmm. compared to other power structures. Yeah, I mean, I, the, in fact, uh, you know, cultural evolution is just as much a, a huge evolutionary experiment as a biological. Um, well, and and it's certain, but, and, it's, but uh, the difference is it's so much faster. It's so much faster. It is as fast it can can spread laterally within a generation in a way in which uh, you know genes can't. And well, you argue, and I think not just you, but in general, that because because of our evolutionary success, mm-hmm. the whole notion of notion of speciation for humans is just out the window. We're not because one because speciation requires certain conditions which no longer exist in humanity. Maybe you want to. Talk yeah, that's that. right. I mean, that's that's and this is entirely independent of culture. Yeah, the fact that we we can't expect speciation derives from the fact that we have a gigantic population in the world, was it closing in on eight billion people, packed cheek to jowl across the entire habitable surface of the world. In the, while we were evolving, 
Uh, our predecessors lived in tiny populations that were scattered in little population nuclei over gigantic landscapes. And uh, they were living in demographic conditions that were very highly conducive to a lot of, uh, to, 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 uh, uh, to evolutionary change. Now those conditions for evolutionary change do not exist anymore. The, uh, you can't frog march a, a huge population down any one biological direction. Um, the genetic inertia within very large populations is just too, uh, is, is just too great. The idea that, I mean, on. you know, from yeah. Darwin's discovery of, mm-hmm. of finches in different islands yeah. is that in order to have speciation, you need to have a population that's, rel- first of all, may, it, well, that's separate from other populations, relatively small. So some... Mm-hmm. Mutation can 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 fortuitously, if if you wish, dominate that population, and then and then and then yeah. and they're separated. So eventually, yeah. they become uh, sexually uh, uh, incompatible among yeah. other things. No, that's that's it. That that that's certainly true for uh, for for mammals uh, such as ourselves. You know, there are other other organisms have uh, different uh, mechanisms, but m- mammals like us, yes, we have to have isolation before we can have speciation. Now, let me. I didn't read this in the book, in your book at all, but I've heard the argument given that there is a route for speciation for humanity, and 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 some people are excited about it. When we send small groups to Mars, mm-hmm. let's say, if we do, and I'm dubious in in the near term, that those groups will there's no they're not there's not going to be a lot of back and forth because uh, because going back and forth mm-hmm. is just hard and difficult, and and so. We will have a small group of, of, of that we will send to another, maybe another planet, yeah. and over time that that that, that could speciate. What do you yeah. think of that? In theory, in theory, that is that's absolutely correct. All you need is a is a small genetically unstable population uh, to incorporate uh, uh, genetic novelties, which are naturally going to arise because of uh, uh, of the mutation that is constantly going on. In the, in the genome. So yes, theoretically it's true. But how are you going to keep that population, you know, uh, uh, um, alive without some kind of a lifeline and connection to Mother Earth? Well, I That's think it's going to be are, tough. It's going to be tough. Well, maybe, but I think it might be tougher to have that lifeline than actually to have. Um, the tr- it's the travel back and forth that's the problem. So we well, anyway, travel I, I, back and forth, and you've got the uh, you have you have the problem of uh, of uh, of maintaining a population on on Mars with uh, you know Martian resources. Well, it's I, look, so, it's all science fiction. I, I think yeah, right. I think people's notions that Mars is going to be oh yeah we're going to yeah. get there and we're going to be able to survive and have have a functioning. It, I think it's largely science fiction. Yeah. But yeah. if you could get a population, a small population on Mars, and it could somehow establish yourself and, and, and exist in isolation uh, from Homo sapiens, all bets would be off, yeah. So enough about humans, let's talk about beer, what really matters. <laughs> so, uh, it, to be fair, the you wrote a meaning called, of life. Yeah, the meaning of life, right. It, that's right. Beer, the universe, and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be fair, you wrote a book also called The Natural History of Wine. But, but um, first of all, which do you prefer, beer or wine? That is a really, that's a really good question. I guess I've been drinking beer longer than I've been drinking wine, but probably not very much, uh, very much longer. Uh, we did the book on, um, on uh, natural history of wine. And, um, after it was published, I, I sort of stopped drinking wine, not in anticipation of the, uh, mm-hmm. of, of the beer book, but we had to do a lot of research. For the for the beer book, that was, that was <laughs> the best. drinking a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you you have to. Beer is a very cultural thing, yeah, you yeah. know, and um, 
and and beer culture is is is, is something to behold. And and uh, so we, we went to Oktoberfest. Oh. Uh, for for example, and that that was one of the most uh, um, eye-opening uh, cultural experiences I've had in in a very long time. And um, we've been drinking a lot of beer. And um, fortunately, uh, you know, thirty years ago, there was not much interesting beer around, if any. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, if you'd asked me this question, whether I preferred beer or wine, uh, 30 years ago, I would have unhesitatingly said wine. Much more interesting, much more diversity, yeah. uh, you know, much more to entertain the palate. But boy, craft beer um, brewing in, in, in the United States particularly yeah. um, has become so creative and so inventive um, in the uh, last uh, 10 or 20 years that you cannot any more longer uh, any longer i think uh, argue that uh, intrinsically wine is is more interesting than beer uh, beer's offering many 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 different things now and um in a way it's you know beer is um a product of its maker more than than wine yeah, is yeah yeah you know wine is supposed to have terroir wine yeah. is supposed to be an expression of place but in in the case of beer, you know, it's 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 the really the expression of the maker, it, right? It, yeah, you, you know? it's a creation that's not yeah, it's yeah. not dependent on the grapes mm-hmm. as much as as the process, right? So in the you know in winemaking, the winemaker is supposed to get out of the way and mm-hmm. and and let the winemaker so yeah. that's the traditional um, uh, 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 sort of expression, um, but beer. Is down to the to to the beer maker, and yeah, no, it's. I mean, I was. By the way, did you know I live in in Portland, and mm. and and I, if you visited there, I've been told Portland has more per capita craft beers than any other place in the world. I know that every time there's a new not new thing in the newspaper, mm-hmm. there's a new beer created with the name of that event in the newspaper. So, oh yeah, well, it's it's really a a beer vana. <laughs> that you have there in, um, in 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 Portland, no question. Although I think Asheville, North Carolina, uh-huh. um, makes an argument for having more breweries per capita of the population. Yeah, well, right? I, I I see that in a lot of things where, where <laughs> these claims are made. But uh, so and it's so. First question is which goes back further in time in in human history, beer or wine? That's a really interesting question, and the the answer is. Nobody is sure, but the very first alcoholic beverages that we know have the characteristics both of beer and of wine. Interestingly enough, the very earliest uh, alcoholic beverage, um, I think, is, is from China, and it's 9,000 years old. Uh-huh. And it's known from chemical residues yeah. you know, on the inside of pots. And those pots have this had, had contained a liquid that had... Some cereal in it had rice. Uh-huh. It had honey, and it had uh, fruit uh, from hawthorn. So it had some of the characteristics of beer, some of the characteristics of mead, and some of the characteristics of wine. So th- what they call extreme beers now mm-hmm. are sort of going back in that direction. That's kind of a return to the origins. A return to the origins. Do you think yeah. there's a do you think there's, a, a, I can't help but ask this, do you think there's a genetic predilection to want to have beer? <laughs> well, you know, there's a very it's interesting cult- thing is they just, uh, you know, the, the humans have, have a unusual tolerance for alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, much more than most mammals and uh, much more than most primates. And it mm-hmm. turns out that this 
the the uh, the mutation in the alcohol dehydrogenase gene that allows us to tolerate much more alcohol mm-hmm. than um, than most primates occurred in the lineage that led to the African apes and humans, maybe at around ten million years ago. Huh. So it's not just humans that have this; it's uh, it's um, chimpanzees uh, have it as well. But there's no examples of chimpanzees making. Uh, fermenting as far as right? there's no example <laughs> of, of uh, chimpanzees uh, making uh, making fermented beverages but there is the, uh, an example of a chimpanzee stealing fermented beverages oh really what what happens when they do well there's a, there's a plantation in a place called Bosu in uh, in in Guinea in West Africa mm. there's a place um, where they have a plantation of raffia palms. Mm-hmm. Right? And raffias are these big, expansive uh, palm trees from uh, from Madagascar. And um, the uh, you can make palm toddy oh. from them by oh. binding together the the, uh, the 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 stems that give rise to the uh, to, to to the fruit, and uh, taking the sap that drips from them. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, the the plantation workers were uh, uh, making toddy for themselves, but they had to be away working most of the day, and the chimpanzees would sneak in. <laughs> and very interestingly, what they would do, they couldn't get their hands into the into the uh, um, uh, the containers that the palm toddy was dripping into, um, and and get enough out. So what they did was they, they took leaves, chewed on the leaves to make a sponge, mm. dipped the sponge in the liquid, yeah. and then helped themselves to the uh, to, to the toddy. And what? they'd be dipping there, dipping, 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 10 times a minute sometimes, you know, for uh, quite some time. <laughs> Necessity being the mother of invention. Yeah. Well, I want to I wanna head towards thinking about the future uh, as we conclude our discussion a little bit. By alternating between optimism and pessimism. <laughs> so if, if part of being human is the hum- inhumanity of being human, and if humans have a bell curve, so that whatever behavior we want, there's always an awful part of it, mm-hmm. as, well, whatever, as well as a, quote, good part. And, you know, you can define yeah. those things mm-hmm. in, in whatever ways you want. Right. It's, it certainly suggests that awful behavior will persist. And, in fact, we're seeing, you know, we see evidence um, and and produce produce results which are which which work against which is sort of anti-select for our own future from mm-hmm. climate change to other things, but you argue not only effectively by choice, but I I found one a quote near the end of your book when I began to feel like doomsday was around the corner <laughs> in reading your book, oh, no, uh, or I'm I think you often do anyway. Um, uh, the, I found this uh, quote in an Assyrian clay tablet from mm. 2800 BC. which I just love this quote now. I I can't believe it. So it's inscribed with the following gloomy inscription. Our earth is degenerate in these latter days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book and the end of the world is evidently approaching. (laughs) I just love that in 2800 BC. Somehow we've survived past that. So maybe predicting... Doomsday in the near future is also equally uh, inappropriate. You know, I mean, there there is certainly something to this. Human beings, and in fact, the biosphere itself, has turned out to be a lot more resilient yeah. than uh, than than uh, perhaps we might uh, than perhaps we might think. But yes, there is a tendency, I think, to have a bit of gloom and doom, and the uh, the uh, the doomsayers are always with us. But then the Pollyannas are out there. 
as well. And as as usual, human experience is going to turn out to be somewhere in the middle. So, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Now, but but I think you. I think you. You try and end an optimistic note that we have the choice. That mm-hmm. that nothing, in the words of of, of Lawrence of Arabia, nothing is written. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that that we have a choice and we have we have a range of intelligence and a range of 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 uh, of, of of choices mm-hmm. and behaviors and that therefore it's not clear that we can predict the future in that regard and that there's a hope there's hope i guess is what you're saying well the only thing i can predict is that if we screw up we'll only have ourselves to blame yeah Right. Um, as to what is is going to happen, um, well, namely, we won't have genetics to blame. Is what you're saying? <laughs> and we can't we can't uh, blame genetics for our present, and I don't think we're going to be able to uh, to uh, uh, blame genetics for the future. I think you know we are we are as a species uh, sufficiently mature to make informed choices, and it's only if we don't make those choices that uh, things are necessarily going to go adrift. Well, look, I think uh, that's a wonderful way to sum up part of our discussion and to actually sum up w- what we're trying to do. Informed choices, you would argue, are our hope. And for me, mm-hmm. having informed discussions like this, <laughs> so fortune certainly favors the prepared mind. And it's wonderful to be have to have these discussions about to prepare our minds to think about what we are as humans. And ultimately, one of the purposes of, of, of all intellectual activity is to review and reflect upon ourselves and, our, and reassess our place in the cosmos. Yeah. And I've certainly been spurred, not only in the past, but now in the present, by discussions with you, to think about what it means to be human. And I want to thank you for coming to talk about that. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I wish I'd uh, talked to you about this book before I wrote it. <laughs> Thanks. The Origins Podcast is produced by Lawrence Krauss, Nancy Dahl, John and Don Edwards, Gus and Luke Holwerda, and Rob Zepps. Audio by Thomas Amison. Web design by Redmond Media Lab. Animation by Tomahawk Visual Effects. And music by Rickolis. To see the full video of this podcast, as well as other bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash originspodcast.